It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> Welcome to Cisco Champions Radio, Season 5, Episode 11. Today we'll be talking about Cisco Multicloud. Our Cisco SME today is Pete Johnson, and our champion hosts today are Luke Ribalo and Matt Jovanovich. And I hope I didn't mess that up too much. As for me, I'm Brett Shore from the Cisco Champion Program Team, and I'm your moderator today. Pete, if you can just introduce yourself briefly and tell us a bit about your role at Cisco, that would be a great start. Sure. Uh, well, thanks so much for having me, for starters. So I'm a technical solutions architect in uh, Wendy Barr's organization. So externally, that's known as the Global Partner Organization. Internally, that's known as the Global Sales Scaling Engines Organization. So I was part of the Clicker acquisition. So I spent about two and a half years there prior to uh, us being acquired by Cisco about two years ago. Uh, and before that, I was a founding member of the HP Cloud team. That was HP's attempt to compete directly with Amazon Web Services uh, based on OpenStack and some other things. I've been in this cloud space for uh, since about 2010, so about eight years or so. And my role in Cisco is uh, to help our partner ecosystem come up to speed on our different cloud products and the selling motions that are associated with those things. And really that, as I think we'll get into in this conversation, comes down to trying to appeal to a slightly different buyer than, than our channel partners or, or the rest of our Cisco ecosystem is typically selling to. It doesn't mean we abandon our traditional IT buyer, but it also means embracing developers in a way that we haven't before. Great. Thanks, Pete. Now, now Matt, if you could introduce yourself and tell us who you are, where you are, and what you do, that would be helpful. Of course. Uh, so, I'm Matt. I'm based in uh, Spain. I'm leading the uh, cloud practice uh, in Logicalis in Europe. Uh, I come from a networking background, so basically I'm a CCIE converted into the ACI and cloud world. I'm a true fan of uh, Cloud Center and uh, Cisco's multi-cloud portfolio, uh, certified in Google Cloud and Amazon. And yeah, I think that pretty much, much sums it up. Great, great introduction. And same question for you, Luke. Who are you, where are you, and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is uh, Luke. I'm a network engineer uh, in based in Belgium. I work for the government, and we are uh, mainly responsible for the private cloud for the complete uh, government uh, based on OpenStack, uh, VMware, and uh, ACI, hopefully. <laughs> hey, thanks. So now we'll kick off this uh, this show, and we'll go ahead and pass the buck over to Matt and Luke to start uh, to start their hosting responsibilities with Pete. Okay, awesome. Uh, well, I can start if you don't mind. Uh, so basically, we're talking about uh, multi-cloud here. Uh, so what I'd like to know is the use cases that you've been seeing so far in the multi-cloud world, because I want to know if you're actually seeing, if you're actually seeing the multi-cloud uh, like a real hybrid applications that are running in the hybrid environment, or is it more like a public public cloud combination or private public or sure. what are the customers doing now? Sure, sure. That's a good place to start. Um, so, so at a high level, I think if, if you look at, at some of the surveys and things that have come out recently with these sorts of things, Cisco right now, we're, 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 we tend to cite uh, the IDC CloudView survey that covered over 8,000 respondents across 31 different countries. And about 85% of, of folks of that group were evaluating some sort of public cloud. And of those 85%, 94% of them plan to use multiple clouds. And if you think about how traditional IT works, it, that 94% number shouldn't be, be too much of a surprise. Because if I'm sitting in like an IT ops organization and I've got, you know, depending upon the size of my enterprise, I might have several dozen applications 
that I'm monitoring and managing, I might have several hundred applications that I'm monitoring and managing. So just think about the diversity of the kinds of applications that you might have there and what are the odds that one cloud would most efficiently meet the needs of all of those applications. There's just too much diversity in the way that the, the applications are constructed and the way that the, the application audiences are and, and so forth and so on. So, so really the, the necessity there is that you, you kind of have to match the application with the best cloud. And so let me, let me give you a pretty common example. So uh, a public facing marketing website is a great example of what you might want to use public cloud for. So there's, there's not typically data security concerns there because there's that's data that you want people to see. So you, you don't worry about security there nearly as much as you might with the second example I'll cover here in a moment. But the demand on that system varies widely depending upon, you know, if, if you just bought the commercial that airs immediately after the men's 100 meters at the Olympics, or if, you know, you've got no marketing activity going on or, or, you know, you're not doing any kind of conferences or, you know, whatever your marketing activity might be. So the, the demand of that is variable. The security risk is low. So that makes it a great, uh, uh, that, that marketing website, that makes it a great fit for a public cloud because you can match the elasticity of uh, your demand with, with uh, being able to, to turn on and off VMs or containers to, to match whatever your load is. Contrast that with, say, your financial data systems, where you've got a, probably a small set of executives and finance people who are looking at that data on a daily basis, and it's highly sensitive. So the, the load on that, the demand for that data is pretty constant because it's got a pretty small audience, and the data is highly sensitive. So that makes a little more sense to put that inside your firewall on a private cloud. So I use these two examples as kind of the extremes as to why you might choose a public cloud for one application and a private cloud for another application. But if you're the IT ops team, you've got to deal with both of them. And that's why products like Cloud Center start to make sense. If you need to manage those applications, you need to have one pane of glass to manage those applications across the different places that they might be deployed. Okay. Yeah, that's perfect. Thanks. From, 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 uh, from what you say, do you see a lot of uh, maturity in the enterprise and the way they consume the cloud? Because what you say is, yeah, you, each cloud, the private, public, you need to map that to the, your application. Uh, do you see trends coming or uh, um, yeah, maturity from the enterprise on sure. making good use of the, of the cloud? Sure. So that's that's another good question. Uh, the other the other thing, if you read through Cisco marketing materials, that tends to fall out of that same IDE, IDC study, is this idea of how mature is your cloud adoption, and they break it into buckets of ad hoc, opportunistic, repeatable, managed, and optimized. So there's five different buckets. So you, you can, you know, without getting into the specific definitions, if you think of it as, you know, different different percentage of of you of organizations being at different places of maturity and, and optimize which which they define i'll define that one is delivering innovative and it enabled products and services for internal and external cloud providers driving business innovation through transparent access to it capacity based on the value of businesses and transparent cost measure so only 11 percent of those surveys felt like they were optimized as opposed to the ad hoc, which is at the, the, the other end of the spectrum, that's increasing awareness of cloud technology options, turning to the cloud to address immediate needs, often in some unauthorized manner. So from the IT ops perspective, that's the dreaded shadow IT. From the line of business developer perspective, they just think of that as I, I got to get work done and I can't sit through multiple tickets in six weeks to just get a VM when I could go run a credit card and get it in 10 minutes. So there's there's, Typically, when we show this in like an EBC to a, a customer, that you, they tend to get like a sigh of relief because the if you read the hype out there in the analyst community, that the thought is is that you're if you're not running optimized multi-cloud right now, you're probably behind, and that's just not the case. There's we're still pretty early in this cloud journey, especially when when viewed through that IT ops lens. Um, so with that over only 11% of them optimized, that's you know almost 90% that are not, and that's where you know, some of the things like Cisco advisory for some of these things starts to, to come into that so that we can help uh, organizations along in that journey. 
Yeah, I think you, you need a, a Cisco partner or Cisco advanced services to, to help you do the transition and make the best use of, uh, of the cloud. Absolutely. And, and, every, and every journey is going to be a little bit different because everybody's got different legacy issues to deal with. They're in different markets. Like it, it, there's not necessarily a one size fits all. There, there are some guidelines that you can take, certainly, you know, with, with like some of the examples that I gave, uh, the, the two examples of different application types I gave earlier. But there's going to be a whole lot of applications and services that sort of sit in that gray area that you're going to have to try one way or another. And maybe, you know, maybe you guess wrong at first and you, you try again. I mean, the, I think the one of the big things that's different about this transition versus what we've done in the past is IT traditionally is pretty risk averse. And when it comes to adopting cloud technology, the, the benefits of, of, of willingness to, to go out and fail and then learn from that failure and, and use that to cycle through to build something better like we're we're kind of having a, a an adjustment into how people think about these things, as opposed to you know going and, and building requirements lists for months and have having weighted spreadsheets that score different choices. And you know by the time by the time you fill one of those out in six months, you could have tried like three or four services, and maybe two of them work, and the other two you shut off, and then you go and try to find the you know the next set of things you want to try. The, so just a question regarding that 11%, it seems like a low number. Is it? Do you have the feeling that it's because the customers don't understand uh, cloud as a technology as a, or a platform or because they don't really know where they want to move with their business, where they want to be in, in a certain number of years? Yeah, I think it's it's partially those things, and I think it's partially th this this growing idea that I just talked about that, Speed is, is sometimes more important than cost efficiency um, and, and getting used to that, that way of thinking about the world. I mean, when, when I started writing code professionally in the early 90s, developers had almost no power. We were almost all in IT and we were writing software for our own internal processes. And that's very different now. If you go look at um, like the, if you go look at like Stack Overflow surveys and and the kinds of jobs that developers are sitting in now, that they, they tend to be in line of business teams, and those line of business teams tend to value speed and innovation over over risk avoidance and security. So that's that's a very different mindset than you know we had 25 years ago when when all almost all developers were either developing commercial software for you know, for, for consumers or they were in IT departments. But now you, you, you could go Google, you know, the example, like pick, pick a company, pick, pick like what, pick the last company you went and bought like your groceries from, or that you just bought your last piece of clothing from and go Google that company with the phrase uh, software engineer or software developer jobs. And what you'll find is that everybody is hiring software engineers now because what, what all companies have figured out is that the easiest way to inject change into their marketplace is with software as opposed to with, with hardware-based solutions. The example I always give there is it's, it's really simple. Think about if you had a flip phone versus a, versus a smartphone and what if you wanted to change the color of one of the dial buttons in either of those scenarios? In the flip phone scenario, that's you know you have to change the manufacturing process. You need to get a different supply of, of dye to change to whatever color you want. And then even when you get all that done in the month that that would take, only your new users are going to get the changes. But in the smartphone scenario, you could make that change in an hour, and millions of people could have that change the next day. Now that's an extreme example, but you know if you think about how software has kind of invaded our lives in a way that was unimaginable 30 years ago. Every business in 2018 is a software business. And, and because of, of this embracing of agile software methodologies and failing quickly, and you don't know what ideas are good, so that the, the faster that you can get them out in front of customers and get feedback, the better. So, so that mindset versus the mindset that we had in the early 90s where you wanted to release software as infrequently as possible because if you had to replace that physical server, it would take months to get it back, to get it back, to get, to get a new one. 
you know, we were very risk averse in how we deployed in the frequency with which we deployed applications. And now we have the exact opposite. So I think a big part of that 11% is, is, is some of this, uh, this cultural thinking change yeah, that we're going through. It's uh, these are st startups and and uh, new new companies. I well, think. it's not just startups and new companies. I mean, you 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 can go like the U.S. example that I'll use. This will be lost in some of our European friends, but there's a retailer here in the U.S. called Kohl's, which is a not quite a big box retailer, but you can pretty much buy whatever you want at, at Kohl's for clothes or, you know, for small appliances for your home and so forth. And, you know, they, they do like, you know, monthly, if not weekly releases of the, the app that they have for their, uh, for, their, for their consumers that walk through their store and try to give them a better shopping experience. I mean, if they're not a Fortune 500 company, they're right on the cusp. So they're, they're certainly not a startup, and you certainly wouldn't think of them as a technology company. But they, like I said, if you go Google that, they're hiring dozens of engineers every month, and it's because... Like I said, they figured out that the best way in their particular market in, you know, consumer goods to the best way to compete is to have better software, to have, have better ways of improving the, the, the customer experience or better ways of, of making it so that their employees can, can react to certain situations in store. Do you think also the, the bad reputation of cloud and security is maybe something that makes it more difficult for companies to move? Well, because... I would go back to, to the idea that that it it depends on the workload. I, I don't think that we can make broad statements anymore about I, I will or will not move to public cloud because of security. I think you need to sort of double click on, okay, what's my application portfolio? Which ones am I worried about? And for those that I am worried about, you know, for example, Cisco has this suite of cloud protect assets that can make it easier to to place a security envelope around those applications in certain ways. Um, I, I think you, you, I think you've probably started to started to see, and I don't have the exact uh, survey numbers to, to to back this up in front of me, but it's certainly there's not as much concern about security now than there was 10 years ago. I mean, once upon a time, you know, for a very long time in in AWS, for example you could only deploy VMs into a public IP space. They didn't have the notion of putting, putting VMs behind a firewall or in different network segments. It was just everybody was out there on the public bare internet. And that obviously raises some concern, concerns. But you know, you, for at least the last uh, eight years, I think VPC came out in 2010, if not 2008. And it was an even number year for some reason, I remember that. You know, you were able to set up these, they call them VPCs, but they're really their own virtual private clouds, but they're really their own land segments that you can place. Um, it, it's like VLANs, basically, that you can launch your, your VMs into those VLANs, and, and the VMs can talk to each other, and you set up virtualized routers, and so not all of them have one like IP, address, IP addresses and are, are exposed in, in that same attack surface as it was in the older days of cloud. So certainly better from the public cloud's perspective. You can augment that with tools like, you know, what we do for Umbrella, or we've got some things in Meraki System Manager, or Tetration, or Stealthwatch Cloud, or CloudLock. I mean, there's other products that you can use to layer on top of that. And then again, I, I don't think I don't think that that it, we can make broad statements about either I will or won't at a corporate level. But you have to look at it more closely at an application by application level now. Regarding more products. Um... With the announcement of ACI Anywhere and uh, seeing that you now can uh, run uh, uh, VMware NSX in the cloud, uh, do you think it's a good way to consume cloud, or maybe is it just to, to offer a transition phase for people to to extend right. their infrastructure in the in the cloud and then move to a cloud native uh, way of consumption? Well, I think. It, it, it's, it's been interesting to me for me to be part of Cisco here the last two years, uh, where where most people in the Cisco ecosystem ha definitely have like the layer two or three of the OSI model perspective of the world, as opposed to an application developer who would have a layer seven perspective of the world. Um, and from that layer two or three perspective of the world, it, it certainly would make sense if you had one 
methodology for managing your network on-prem, you would like to extend that to the public cloud and, and things like ACI Anywhere. You see some things that what we're doing with the, the CSR series and, and the Edge series to, to make it easier to set up those VPN connections. We're not quite there yet where you could say, you know, go to your APIC UI and be able to have one place on-prem where you're managing all your, your on-prem stuff and all your cloud stuff, but we're getting pretty close. I don't know if you guys have seen, um, as part of the, the Cisco container platform, there's a component within there. It's an open source component uh, that we've tricked out a bit called Confees, which yeah, basically yeah. makes it so that you can take a container a, a Kubernetes distribution, a Kubernetes cluster, and you add Conti to it. And among the things that you can do with Conti, you can do lots of different things with Conti. But among the things you can do with Conti is you can you can have that be like a, a management bridge between your Kubernetes cluster and your APIC controller. So now, if you've got all that on prem with CCP, for example. I can now, as a network administrator, use the same endpoint groups and contracts and all the, the different constructs within ACI for managing my network. And I can now use that to manage bare metal, to manage VMs, and to manage containers all from that single, from that single pane of glass. And, and I think what, you know, the kind of the, the nirvana of all that would be to, to not only have that single pane of glass from the network engineer's perspective, encompass all that stuff on-prem, but also encompass some of that stuff that's in various public clouds as well. Much the same way that like a more layer seven perspective that Cloud Center gives you today, where um, with, with the announcement that we had of the Kubernetes orchestrator on, on Cloud Center. So now, you know, whether I'm deploying on, on VMs or on containers or on public cloud or on private clouds, I can, I can manage them all from kind of a layer seven perspective from that single pane of glass on Cloud Center. So I think you're starting to see like incremental steps towards that so that so that you get kind of this, this nirvana being able to manage everything from that one place. Um, I have a, a, a sort of an unpopular question. <laughs> uh, so um, when you talked about, about uh, cloud management platforms in general, uh, yeah. There is uh, obviously the system integrator Logicalis. We see uh, a lot of uh, interest around that area. And uh, for example, there are some, like for example, Red Hat cloud forms that are basically for free, not for free, but really cheap. Uh, Terraform is also quite attractive to the uh, programmers from what we've seen. Also, RightScale is really popular. Um, could, could you tell us maybe the differentiators? Uh, what feedbacks have you gotten from the customers who maybe transitioned from one of the others to the cloud center and uh, what benefits are you actually seeing on the in the market there? Sure. So there's a couple of ways to think about this, but I, I think that the main thing, if you think about how Cloud Center architecture works, the most important the most important thing conceptually about Cloud Center is is that Cloud Center thinks of the application as the first class citizen. So it thinks about the world from layer seven down as opposed to layer one up, and and that ends up making a pretty big difference relative to many of our competitors in, in the way that we view deployments. Um, so for example, like the 800-pound the gorilla in this space, you, you didn't mention it just now, Matt, but is, is, um, is the vRealize suite. And that could be a great tool set if all you're doing is deploying on top of VMware. Um, but if you want to start to deploy things on things that are not VMware, whether that's you know, native in Azure or Google Cloud or, or, or even Azure Stack on-prem, uh, some of the models that, that are in a lot of those tools start to break down because they view the world from the resources up as opposed to the application down. So, I, I, Matt, I know you're familiar with this because you and I, when we saw each other a couple of weeks ago at, at Partner Connection Week, we talked about this a little bit, right? The, the thing you do in Cloud Center is the first thing you do is you model your application. So, what are the components of the application, you know, like web servers, local load balancers, database servers, and, and how do those components interact with one another? And then for each of the individual components, you tell Cloud Center not just about what middleware you might be interested in, let's say an Apache web server. You don't want to just go deploy an Apache web server to have it say hello world, right? You, you have some, you know, let's say it's a, a LAMP stack application and I've got some 
um, I've got some uh, some Python code that I want to deploy on there that's that's going to form the basis of, of my business logic for my application. So tell us where we can find those custom files that make your application uniquely yours. So once you've done that, once you've bundled that into uh, what we call an application profile, you can now deploy it across you know any of the depending upon how you count it, you know, 16 to 20 different backends that we support, including Kubernetes now, like I mentioned before. So that main concept, you know, you can you can spend a whole lot of time in Cloud Center without talking about the specific resources on top of which that application will be deployed. So so because of that, um, with with the application profile as sort of your deployable unit, now you can have all kinds of governance in place. So as an IT ops person, I can I can make it so that my development staff can go and and spin up resources uh, on a moment's notice without having to go through some complex ticketing process. But I get to inject some of my own you know security and and pricing governance in this. So I might say, okay, Matt, you can only deploy applications X, Y, and Z, and you can only deploy them on AWS US West. And I might say, Luke, here you can you can deploy applications B and C, but you can only deploy them on uh, on uh, on Google Central or maybe only on my private cloud. So those are the kinds of things in terms of putting some guardrails around who is allowed to deploy what where. And then there's a financial part of this as well. And, and there's, a, there's a new costing feature with Cloud Center 4.9 that's part of the compute IO uh, acquisition that we just did, um, where I could say, okay, Matt, you, you're a developer and you can, only spin up, you can only spin up 25 VMs at a time. And, and maybe Luke, uh, but you're, maybe Luke, you're an ops person and so you've got some production workload that you're managing. You can spend as much as $5,000 per month. And I don't care if it's on a public cloud or what I'm charging you for a private cloud. So a, a big part of it, you know, like I mentioned, the, the perspective that Cloud Center takes is important, but then so, is, so are all the, the governance rules that are in place for, for not only access control, but then also the cost controls. So that you have a single pane of glass that you can you can use to uh, to put some guide guardrails up. The, the analogy I'll make: I was just talking to um, at Partner Connection Week. I spent some time. Um, I don't know if you guys know Anoj Willie over at uh, Zentars, and he he had this example for me that made sense. Was think about banking, right? I I can go up to an ATM anywhere in the world, and I can very quickly get access to cash out of my out of my uh, account. But there's a limit as to how much I can take at a, at a typical time. Like I think my limit is I can get $300 a day. Whereas if I, I need you know, something more, you know, if I needed, let's say $1,000 in cash for something, I can get that, but I have to walk into the, to the branch for that. I have to show them some identification. I have to you know, give them some, some other personally identifiable information before they'll you know, let me do things like apply for a home loan or you know, or get a cashier's check or, you know, there's, there's some things in the banking industry where if you're getting somebody access to larger sums of money, you have to go through different security aspects. Whereas if I'm just, you know, doing quick cash to, you know, go pay for a movie or buy a sandwich or something, I can, I can go get that from an ATM quickly. So, so this is the kind of thing that, that Cloud Center can do from, uh, from a compute resource in the cloud perspective, that it can set up, it can set up these, it, it can basically set up the, the ATM part of that analogy so that as a developer or even as like a marketing person that wants to spin up a wiki or a blog somewhere, I can do those things very quickly without having to go through some cumbersome ticketing process. But because the governance that's baked into the system, both from an access perspective and from a, from a cost perspective, that IT team gets to maintain some control without inhibiting the speed of their, of their different consumers in this example. You mentioned uh, Contif, uh, which is uh, open source. Um, there were two other projects in the uh, open source community with uh, Cisco and Container that was uh, shipped and Mental. Yep. Do you see them deployed? Do you, do you see them being integrated in other projects or do you have any information regarding that? No, I don't think we'll see that going forward. I think those were really good experiments for us to learn a lot about what the capabilities of the container space were. Um, I've not heard 
of, of folks spending a whole lot of time on that since about last fall when we kind of made the turn uh, to, to working on CCP and we made the broader announcement with Google. Um, so yeah, I don't, as, as cool as Mantle and Shipped were, I don't think we'll see a lot of work on that going forward. But you know, CCP is obviously a big part of the portfolio mm -hmm. going yeah. forward. Has has benefits to sort of lowering the learning curve for our friends in IT ops, while uh, making it so that we we don't have to slow down developers in those line of business teams who now don't have to de don't have to go deploy and manage their own Kubernetes clusters on public mm -hmm. cloud because now they can get them from IT more quickly than they did before and and with better support because Cisco TAC will take frontline support on that and then. Uh, Google takes second level support on that. Can we talk about the product, the Cisco Workload Optimization Manager, and do you see that as a complement to Cloud Center, or are they placed differently in the portfolio? No, so no, CWAM definitely is a complement to Cloud Center, okay. and uh, although I've not used it personally, there, I mean, one of the, the cool things about Cloud Center is there's all kinds of hooks in Cloud Center for interacting with all kinds of things and and workload placement with CWAM, you know, based on all the data that you can you can get in there within CWAM and, and the underlying turbonotic turbonotic turbonomic product um, is is all part of that. So there's a hook that uh, that an IT administrator. So if somebody with an admin rights in Cloud Center when they're setting up something called a deployment environment. So think of a deployment environment in Cloud Center as an envelope around one to many clouds. Uh, I can grant you access to a deployment environment and, and then by extension by the clouds that are uh, that are that are within that envelope. And, and among the things that I can do when I set up a um, when I set up a deployment environment is I can specify some callout scripts to go call a tool like uh, CWAM to to help me. You know, at, when somebody goes to deploy something, uh, it could go make some decisions. That, that maybe that example I gave before where, or Luke, maybe you get where, the example I gave previously was maybe for, for Luke, you have the permission to deploy to a public or private cloud. Well, maybe maybe using that that scripting to go call CWAM, I take that choice away from you. Or maybe I give you an optimized here. Here's what I think you should do, but you could still overwrite it with, you know, clouds X, Y and Z. So they're definitely complementary. So we get uh, just one, one, we, Yeah, go Matt. Sorry, look, uh, I had a question regarding the same, more or less, topic because it's a, it's a really, really interesting one, and I think the cloud center with uh, app dynamics providing the entire visibility of the application and uh, workloads optimization manager, and also the compute I/O, good acquisition by the way. Um, I think it's a really good value proposition. So I had a question regarding this, and this is the question that we had in the house and a lot of customers also, also uh, asked a similar question. Which kind of prof, because obviously developers uh, do the, you know, the entire software development and uh, for the infrastructure, you have the traditional infrastructure engineers, but this part, this like uh, devops part uh, with the app dynamics and ergonomic and uh, Compute IO. Who, which profiles do you recommend to be doing this type of stuff? Because developers are obviously not really interested in that infrastructure part, and infrastructure guys don't tend to understand this, um, you know, the application part. So, do you have right. some experience or, or recommendations? Who should we recommend going into into that area? Yeah, and, and this is where you get into, this is exactly why we're seeing that 11% optimized, right? Is because of questions exactly like this and because of the traditional roles that we're talking about. I mean, to go back to the OSI model uh, again, just a little bit, the, the cool thing about the OSI model is that the, the innovation of the individual layers get isolated from each other, right? So I can innovate at layer two and layer seven just gets the benefit. They don't have to make any changes. But socially, what the OSI model has done is it's isolated us from one another where you, you typically you don't have people who are operating at layer seven, those developers talking much to the folks at layer two and three. And that leads to some of these difficult conversations like what you're bringing up here. So who should be responsible for those things? And, and it, it really depends on the organization. In, in some organizations, it's gonna be you know, some developer that is, or, that is interested in some of the infrastructure who's gonna sort of reach down the OSI model and, have the, and be the bridge to, to those folks that operate at layer two and three. Other times it's gonna be the opposite. And even third times, you know, maybe you're creating a new role that acts as the 
as kind of the, the gatekeeper between the two of them. And, and this is where when you get into some of the advisory, this is, this is why that advisory is so important is to identify those, those gaps and, and to help, help an organization figure out what's best for them it, it, uh, among those three different choices that I just went over. In Cloud Center and in Workload Optimization Manager, is there a lot of metrics that you can use to um, move your workloads around and maybe decide, okay, for this type of workload, I want to go to that cloud. And if we have a kind of a security breach or if Tetration um, right. sees something, we can blacklist uh, some, some infrastructure or something like that. Do you see that kind of behavior? So we, we typically don't see it quite that sophisticated, although from the Cloud Center perspective, the hook is there for you to, to do it. I mean, basically, basically what happens is that at, at the point at which it, it shows the user what the deployment choices are, Cloud Center will call this script hook to, to get some amendments on what those choices should be. Um, and so in this example, it would call out to CWAM. CWAM typically does like a resource uh, a resource analysis, um, whether, it, whether it relates to, to balancing resources across, say, multiple VMware installations internally, or um, like it, it, takes into, to, it takes into account capacity kinds of things. That doesn't mean that it couldn't, you know, whatever Cloud Center made a, a call out to couldn't take into account things like the blacklist scenario or things like the um, like the, you know, temporarily we think we have a breach in X. Uh, so it doesn't do that kind of stuff automatically. No, but you can, you can automate that, it. The, the, but, but the hook from Cloud Center just basically says, hey, what should I show this person in terms of choices? And then it's, it's up to whatever it is you've called to, to come up with those choices. And that's, that's one of the powers of Cloud Center's modularity is that you, you could plug in anything you wanted to there, including your own custom thing that maybe used Blacklist and uh, TWAM for, for resource utilization. I was wondering, because um, apparently there is this, uh, we also, we've also seen this, uh, let's say, not uh, integrated model within, within different departments in, uh, in, a, in a whole yeah. lot of customers. So um, when we go with the CMP or like uh, when we present the Cloud Center and when we do the, the entire Cloud Center pitch, uh, normally there's just the cloud guys. So the pilot of Cloud Center, at least here in Europe, when we're doing it, it's completely isolated from the other stuff it's like considering my multi-cloud environment so i was wondering sure. if you how how often are you seeing because apparently in the application profile uh, you can integrate a whole lot of uh, stuff in your application you can integrate f5 a10 and i don't know which others are some are officially yes. recognized some you can you know write yourself um or you can also integrate aci and stuff like that um, are you seeing uh, those kind of implementations often in the when customers are deploying Cloud Center, or is it more of a CMP like uh, managing the clouds and not really uh, integrated with the with the infrastructure in the private cloud? Yeah, it it it's certainly a mix, and and to extend off of the, what you were just mentioning with like uh, A10 or or F5. So I, I mentioned before that as you're creating an application profile, you, you tell Cloud Center about the different components of your application. And I use the example of local load balancers, web servers, and database servers as kind of a standard three-tier web application architecture. Um, Cloud Center ships with open source, commonly used open source variants for each one of those Lego blocks is kind of the way to think of it. So, Say on the on the load balancing tier, for example, you you've got you can choose uh, between uh, Engine X and a couple other choices. But if if you wanted to integrate your if you've got some physical F5 load balancers or even some virtualized ones, um, that doesn't ship out of the box with the product. But there are there are definitions of those Lego blocks that are part of the the GitHub repo that the, the sales engineers that work on Cloud Center use. So, so you can go and, and take those and so you don't have to completely start from scratch on some of the common ones, um, but you can, you, can use, you can use some of that stuff that's out there from, a, um, from GitHub to help you start that part of the implementation. And, and so some, some organizations wanna to continue to, to use those in this example, 
the, the physical load balancers. Others are trying to move away from those and move to some more virtualized uh, solutions for that. And it, it really depends on, on how, you know, on some of the larger issues that you might get to if you start to get into some consultative sailing kind selling kind of motions with, with these kind of guys and kind of act as that bridge like we talked about before between uh, between developers and uh, the IT teams. So it, it kind of depends on, on what some of those macro level issues are. But you can, in that specific example, you can certainly do that. And then there's there's other hooks for for things like monitoring tools and making it easier to, to put in things like AppDynamics and, and things of those nature. The ACI one is a little bit different because that one you do, that interaction you don't do at an application profile level. That one you do at the, the private cloud level. So as I'm, as in I'm an administrator that's configuring the connectivity to my private cloud, when it's a VMware-based cloud, there's there's literally a, a checkbox that I can check if I want to to use ACI for my networking instead of the, the default VMware. And if I click that checkbox, I'll be asked some connectivity information for the APIC controller. And then Cloud Center, as it begins to deploy applications in that mode, will automatically create endpoint groups or it can reuse existing ones and it'll automatically create or reuse uh, contracts between those. Okay. Um, you mentioned the, the the Cisco Cloud Platform and the, the Kubernetes distribution that you, you, you announced uh, earlier this year. Yeah. Uh, I have, we are running OpenShift uh, in-house um, and I was wondering why Cisco went to the container game and what would be the, the main benefits of uh, CCP uh, versus uh, a product like OpenShift or another uh, Kubernetes distribution? Right. Well, the, there, there's a couple of things there. Um, it, it, you can kind of think of, and in, in, in not all this competitive is, is out there yet, but the but it, it should be here by the end of the summer or so as we begin to, to create some of this content and get it out there. But, but uh, you mentioned OpenShift specifically, so if you, you can kind of think of, you can kind of think of the Kubernetes work as, as having kind of multiple layers to it. Um, and so, so there's kind of the, the core distribution, right? There's kind of the, there's kind of the, the part that does the, the core container scheduling. And below that, you've got things like the container networking and the mm -hmm. virtualization and, and whatever, whatever hardware you might be putting this on. Above above that kind of main container, there's things like the logging and monitoring. There's things like your container registry, and then the apps that sit on top of that. You've got some kind of application lifecycle and some kind of CI/CD pipeline for deploying on top of those things. So OpenShift tries to break tries to offer you a single solution that does the the entire stack worth of of uh, that functionality that I just described. So pretty much everything from the delivery pipeline down to where you're doing the virtualization. So you don't get a whole lot of choice there. Uh, because we, we kind of break that up into multiple products. So if you think about Cloud Center on top of CCP and then augmented with something like AppDynamics, um, you get pretty close to what OpenShift offers, but with, with far more configurable, far more flexible options. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Um, there's an argument to be made that, you know, if you're already using Cisco TAC for your, your hardware, you, for your, your networking hardware, and if you're a UCS or a Hyperflex customer for your servers, that you might be more comfortable just having, you know, one throat to choke when something goes wrong called Cisco TAC for your container platform as well. Uh, there's the, there's the, the angle of this that because we're working so closely with Google, they not only are providing the second level support, but they're providing us the, the same Kubernetes distribution that they use on GKE, we're using for CCP. So there's, there's some of that peace of mind that goes along with that as well. And then I, I think the thing that people underestimate about moving to containers and about moving to cloud native applications is, you know, the, the, the networking is almost always the last thing that someone thinks of when we start to, to take on you know, the, this revolution. It certainly happened with VMs and, and virtualizations as we saw that kind of stuff last. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, while it is, while it is uh, open source and anybody could use Contive, um, 
given the amount of investment that we've made in it and the expertise that we've built with it and the fact that we've made it so that you can have it interact with ACI, um, that's something that you're not going to find in, in OpenShift or Cloud Foundry or, or some of those other competitors out there in the container world. So, I mean, really, we, we, those are some of the benefits, the competitive differentiators we have on CCP relative specifically to, to OpenShift to, to answer your specific question. And really, we got, I mean, we got into this is because we see this as a, as a growth market. I mean, you, you, we, we talked before about how developers are starting to have purchasing power in a way that, um, that we didn't before. And this, you know, this is a way to appeal to developers and uh, the, the IT ops people that would like to serve them that's, that's kind of unique. I mean, if, if you look at some of the analyst stuff that's out there now with regard to um, to container and Kubernetes usage, what you find is uh, IT teams that are struggling to, to to overcome the learning curve of you know taking something off the off the top of the off the top of trunk, open source, and figure out figure out a way to oper operationalize that. So instead, developer teams are are taking it themselves spinning it up in EC2, and then they're having to devote some of their own resources to managing that. So that's, that's resources that they could be using to write code if only they could trust their IT teams to spin up Kubernetes clusters for them quickly in a way that they know aren't going to go down. Well, that's exactly what CCP does, right? Is It's this, this set of automations that lowers that learning curve for the IT ops people so that they can manage and spin up those Kubernetes clusters with the backing of both Cisco and Google uh, in a way that, that the development teams are going to trust so that now they, they can free up some of those resources that they're using to manage their own container clusters today, uh, trust their IT teams, and then, and then redirect those resources back to what they do best, which is writing code. I have a question also related to this topic. So apparently there's been a, a lot of interest in OpenShift recently, and um, some of our customers are wondering whether, because OpenShift has been around for, I won't say for a while, but for enough to be already in some production environments. So sure. uh, a CCP is seen as a kind of a new solution, and the maturity sure. is there being a question. So obviously, uh, since I'm a certified as a cloud architect on Google, I really like the, the Kubernetes engine, and I know how it auto-scales uh, perfectly and all that. So um, when we talk about the CCP, my idea at this moment uh, is that it's written, uh, deployed uh, by, by Google engineers, and uh, I mean designed by Google engineers, and on top of hyper-converged platforms. So the experience regarding the scaling and uh, the, the entire experience should be similar to uh, Kubernetes engine. So the product should be already mature, even though it's uh, right new to the market. So how true is this? <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I mean, that, that's a fair assessment of it. I mean, if, if, you're sitting, if you're sitting in an IT ops role now and you want to pick something up that's going to give you Kubernetes capabilities. I mean, those are those are certainly two of the choices that you have. And 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 while CCP is certainly still in its early access phase, um, or we're you know we're we're about to, to exit from that into the version one of general release. Yeah, everything you just said is is exactly true. Is is you know th this isn't your typical version one of this because Google's been using this internal forever. And I mean, if you even if, if even think of it as a how long has Kubernetes been available, right? I, I think that became generally available as an open source project in, in like 2015, I want to say, right? So that's only that's only been three years, even though Google's been using it internally for a, a decade, depending upon, you know, which statements out of out of Google you believe on that. So yeah, I mean it's it's a curated Kubernetes, it's a curated and automated Kubernetes stack is what CCP is in you know in one sentence, and that 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 doesn't mean it's it's sort of as green as other V1 products should would be for exactly the reasons you just you just mentioned for the, the folks that have been backing it and curating it for as long as they have. Well, it's clear that uh, running CCP on top of Hyperflex and with the uh, Contive SCI or mainly SCI 3.1 um, integration makes it really easy to to embrace the intent-based um, 
networking that we have been talking about for quite some time now as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what you're you're seeing in V1. Certainly Hyperflex is a big part of V1, but I think in later releases you're going to see other other hardware alternatives embraced. Um so it's not ex you know longer term it's not going to exclusively be uh Hyperflex, but Hyperflex was chosen here number one because there were some cool things that we can do with the storage driver um, to make it easier to, to mount some storage onto the individual containers. Um, it, it makes Kubernetes a little more approachable for smaller organizations uh, who maybe don't have the, the overhead to, to make their own uh, investments in, in Kubernetes on their own. So they're kind of the most in need of flattening that learning curve. And like I said, long, longer term, you're, you're going to see something for, for other hardware platforms. Okay, great. Thank you. Matt, do you have any other questions? Yeah, I think I think I'm good. That was uh, really interesting. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done as well. Apologize. I was on mute and didn't realize. Yeah, ask here. It looks like we're we're finishing up here, and there's no more questions. And I didn't see anything from the audience here. Uh, Pete, is there anything that you want to finish with? Anything that you think that this audience should know before we leave this uh, conversation? Yeah, I think. You know, the, the biggest things here are, you know, all, all this, all these things going on in this cloud area really shows Cisco's commitment to to being a part of this conversation. One one of the things that I I really love about working at Cisco right now in the cloud area is that we we kind of have this cloud Switzerland approach, right? If if you want to take on Kubernetes and and run that on prem, you can use CCP. If you want to do, you know, your own kind of services on prem, you could do something like Azure Stack. Um, if, if you want to be able to, to connect, you know, another part of the Google solution is being able to connect more easily to uh, Google public cloud services while your kind of your main business logic sits on-prem, you can do that. Um, and I think you'll see a lot of these things shown up at, at Cisco Live uh, US, which is here uh, coming up in June in Orlando. Uh, so a lot of stuff to, to take a look at there. Great. Thanks, Pete. So we'll go ahead and wrap up then. Um, so thank you, everyone. This has been episode 11 of Cisco Champions Radio Season 5. I want to thank all of you for joining us today, and especially to Pete for sharing his insight, and Luke and Matt for hosting today's session. Great job, guys. Um, as always, thanks to everyone for joining and participating in Cisco Champions Radio. Look for the next episode. Or, or I'm sorry, look for this episode and other awesome episodes on blogs.cisco.com perspectives. I'm Brett Shore, today's moderator. Tune in next week, and in the meantime, we'll see you in the Twitterverse at Cisco Champions. Until next time. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.